0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 33. Last week, I began with the remaining couple of places found in the territory of Asher, covered the few in Naphtali, and began those in Dan. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Dan and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. First up is a place named Ejahon. This valley garnered its first mention earlier in Joshua, as the place where the moon stood still while the Israelites battled the Amorites. Most of the attention in this passage is paid to Gibeon, where the sun remained motionless in the sky. But the valley of Ejahon can't be overlooked. As near as I can figure, Ajihan is about 10 miles, 16 kilometers from Gibeon. In this battle, the Israelite forces, while being led by Joshua, defeated five allied Amorite kings. Joshua led his troops in a night march to rescue the city of Gibeon from the alliance being led by the king of Jebus, which would later become known as Jerusalem. Joshua pursued the coalition eastward, down through the descending road of beth Haran, and then southward across the valley of Ajehan. But, they were running out of daylight, so Joshua asked the Lord to lengthen the day by uttering to the sun to stop its daily march across the sky, and the moon to do the same in the valley of Ajahan. Of course, we know about this since it was recorded in Joshua and it's noteworthy because the two celestial bodies did as commanded. Soon after this, the tribes would fight through some of Canaan, then divide up the remaining territory by lot. Of course, the city of Ajehan would go to Dan. This likely means the valley went to them as well. In the next chapter of Joshua, Ajehan would be named as a Levitical city. So, while in the territory of Dan it would be controlled by the priestly Levites. In this case, by the Kohathites. But there's something else, and this was mentioned in Judges 1. The city would be controlled by the Amorites. This despite their earlier defeat in Joshua. The actual text reads, The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country. They did not allow them to come down to the plain, meaning the valley. The Amorites continued to live in a few named cities, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. In this case, Joseph refers to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons and Dan's neighbors. So, a literal reading means the Danites couldn't control the Amorites living in their territory, but the sons of Joseph could. Why would this happen? In order to answer this question, you must first understand what was going on with the Philistines. They exerted constant pressure on their neighbors, whether Amorite, Danite, or anyone else sharing a border with them, all in an effort to gain territory, and with that, agriculture and trade. In the case of the Danites, the Philistines were trying to control the valleys of Shaphila. This is a transitional region of soft sloping hills in south central Israel, stretching over six to nine miles, ten to fifteen kilometers between the Judean mountains and the coastal plain. The reason for this should be obvious trade routes and food. This pressure from the Philistines forced the tribe of Dan to retreat to the west and reduce their overall territory. Before long, the Danites would abandon their assigned territory, migrate to the extreme northern part of Israel, and settle in the city of Lahish, which they renamed Dan. This can be found in Judges 18, Now, I'll get to that story in the history at some point in the future, maybe next week. Back in Ajehon, the valley was also where King Saul, along with his son Jonathan, defeated the Philistines, Jonathan led a spectacular attack on the Philistines at Maikmash, who beat a hasty retreat to the valley, over 15 miles, 24 kilometers, from the initial battlefield. After this, and considering this was also after the Danites up and moved, the city and the valley of Ajehon would be inhabited by the Ephraimites and the Benjaminites. This is likely also when the Amorites were pressed into servitude under the hand of Joseph. Later, after Saul, David, and Solomon reigned as kings, and the kingdom disunited, a.k.a. split, Ajehan would become the boundary between the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Rehobam, the first king of Judah, would fortify this city. Besides a purpose-built fortification, this also meant men would garrison there, along with stocks of weapons, food, and other supplies. And that's the city as found in the biblical narrative. In the outside record, it's mentioned in the Amarna letters, written during the last dozen or so years of Pharaoh Akhenaten. What I may not have mentioned, at least not yet, is that the last couple of years of these records may have been during the first few years of King Tut's reign, placing it in the 14th century BC, and while the Israelites were still living in Egypt. On these tablets, the writer records the destruction of the city of Ajalon by unnamed invaders. The author, believed to have been the governor of the region or perhaps a vassal king, also records himself as afflicted, greatly afflicted, by the calamities that had come on the land, urging the king of Egypt to hasten to his aid. This is in line with other similar tablets from the time and sent to Egypt. As for these invaders, they could have been the Sea Peoples, who may have morphed into the Philistines. There is a less popular theory that it was the Amorites attacking the Egyptians. Truth be told, there isn't conclusive evidence in either direction, so either is based on a broader history coupled with speculation. Later, in the 10th century B.C.E., in the accounts of Egyptian pharaoh Shashank I, when his forces invaded the region, probably during the reign of Solomon. In the 19th century AD, Edward Robinson proposed that Ajalon was located at the site of the modern village of He relied on the works of Jerome and Eusebius, who recorded that Ajalon was two Roman miles from Nicopolis. Robinson also used the text of the Old Testament, along with the name itself specifically writing that similarities between the Arabic name and its Hebrew root point towards the location. This yellow was abandoned and destroyed in the 1967 Six-Day War. And that's it for Ajloun, the village, and the valley. The next Danite city is B'nai Barak, which literally means the Sons of Barak. This may be related to the Barak in the Book of Judges, But that event is still a ways off. This naming would only make sense if the name recorded in Joshua represented this later event, meaning the name was changed in the text. And the mention in Joshua is the first in the text of the Old Testament. And he's the only person with that name in the entirety of the Bible. Perhaps it was named after the sons of someone else. As for the city, this is the only mentioned in the Old Testament or the New, which means I must be covering it for other reasons. The city, village, whichever, is associated with agriculture. This is recorded in the much later Talmudic writings of Rami Bar Yaheskil, who lived in the 3rd century AD, perhaps in Babylon. He would compare Bene Barak to the Old Testament promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. His actual text, in one translation, tells of goats beneath a very ripe fig tree, what he called honey oozing from the figs, milk dripped from the goats, and the two combined into one flowing stream. Obviously, the honey from figs, and maybe even the milk from the goats, is more figurative than literal. After seeing this, Yahezkel wrote that he finally fully appreciated the significance of the Torah using the single term flowing in regard to both milk and honey to indicate that the two flowed together. In the same period, and less meaningful to modern Christians, B'nai Barak became the seat of Rabbi Akheva and is identified as the site of his all-night Seder in the Passover Haggidah. This was when the priest would read at the Seder table, and in fulfillment of the command to each Jew to tell your children the story from the book of Exodus, about God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, as it is written in the Torah, what we call the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 13. A village was located near the ancient site but it was abandoned during 1948's Arab-Israeli War. And that's the Sons of Barak. The last place I'm covering this week is the Danite village of Jaffa. This is the same place as the modern city of Jaffa. A replacing O. Whichever way you spell it, the place is essentially part of the modern city and port of Tel Aviv, Israel. How it got that name, I'll get to towards the end of the episode. As for the ancient name, some believe it was named for Japheth, son of Noah. While Jaffa does merit a mention in Joshua, that's just the beginning for it. Jonah would head out to sea from there, bound for Tarshish, and Simon Peter was likely born and raised there. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The ancient city was built atop a 130-foot, 40-meter ridge that overlooked the coast below. This positioned it well for the trade that the sea would bring, while also protecting it from both sea and land invaders. One of the more interesting things about the place is that it has been nearly continually occupied since the Middle Bronze Age. As time has passed, and due to the accumulation of silt, debris, and other factors, the hill has grown higher. Nearly all of the mentions in both testaments are of a geographic place name sort with most occurring in Acts, in the Deuterocanonical Books of Maccabees. In those, Joppa was fortified and caught up in several of the battles between the Maccabeans and the Greeks. Backing up a bit, after the Danites took possession of their territory, they did not drive out the Philistines. Despite this, many of the tribe would live on the coast where they would become fishermen, shipbuilders, and sailors. This is one of the reasons why the Song of Deborah, found in Judges 5, asks, Why does Dan live on ships? Jaffa is mentioned as a port of entry for the cedars from Lebanon that were being imported for Solomon's temple. As found in the book written by the prophet Ezra, the cedars used in the second temple were also imported there. In both cases, the Lebanese cedars were likely exported at Tyre. About 90 miles, 145 kilometers up the coast, they were sailed across the sea and landed at Jaffa. In the New Testament in Jaffa, Peter would bring a widow named Dorcas, sometimes rendered as Tabitha, back to life. There's more context to the story, so I'll let the text do the telling. Tabitha was devoted to good works and acts of charity. Then she caught ill and died when the women of the neighborhood had washed her. They laid her in a room upstairs. Peter was in Lydda, which was near Joppa. The people who knew Tabitha heard about this and sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So, Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs, where the lifeless body of Tabitha had been laid. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that she had made while she was alive. Peter put them all outside, then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Which gets me to chapter 10 of Acts. At the same time, and in the nearby Caesarea, the Roman centurion Cornelius sent for Peter. But before he left Jaffa for the other port city, Peter had a vision. In it, he is shown a large sheet filled with what were under Jewish law considered clean and unclean animals being lowered from heaven. In the short message attached to the vision, he was told that the delineation between clean and unclean animals was no longer applicable and all could be consumed. Think of this the next time you eat a bacon cheeseburger. Bacon, no longer off-limits. Cheese and meat, on the same plate. No problem. Back in the text, that wasn't all. Cornelius sent a few men to ask Peter to leave Jaffa and go with them back to Cornelius up the coast. Peter listened and went with them, making the trip part of his overall mission to teach Christianity to the Gentiles. In the outside record, the city was established no later than about 1800 BC, as this is the age of the oldest artifacts, though it was likely earlier and those archaeological finds didn't survive or have yet to be uncovered. Jaffa was mentioned in an ancient Egyptian letter from about 1440 BC. This predates the Amarna letters by about 100 years, and was likely towards the beginning of when the Israelites were living in Egypt. This document is known as the Taking of Jaffa, and is probably an overhyped story of Pharaoh Thutmose III's forces conquering the city. In it, his general hid Egyptian soldiers in sacks, carried by pack animals, and sent them camouflaged as tribute to the Canaanite city, where the soldiers emerged and conquered it. Which certainly sounds familiar, as in the Trojan Horse, but it predates Homer's similar tale by at least two centuries, maybe as many as four. About 100 years after the mention in the correspondence to Thutmose, Jaffa would also be referred to in the Armano letters. To lesser and greater extents, Jaffa would be controlled by the Egyptians through about 800 BC. At some point following the death of King Solomon, Jaffa returned to Philistine control. This is seen when in the late 8th century BC, Neo-Assyrian Emperor Sennacherib, conquered and captured it from its sovereign, the Philistine king of Ashkelon. The Neo-Assyrians recorded the event in their records. This was when Hezekiah was king of Judah. After the Neo-Assyrians were the Babylonians, then the Persians. When they were in charge, they relied on the Phoenicians based in Tyre to govern the region. The Persians would lose Jaffa and the region to Alexander the Great who used the city to house many of his troops. The Seleucids would use Jaffa as a port, at least until the Maccabean Revolt in the 1st century BC. Eventually, the Greeks won out, but then would be replaced by the Romans, who would control the city when Christ walked in the region, along with the period when Acts was written, aligning the history with what's found in the text of the Bible. During the First Jewish-Roman War, Jaffa was captured, then burned by the Roman general Gallus. This included burning the port facilities. The Jewish rebel leader turned historian Josephus recorded that 8,400 residents were massacred in the same action. He also wrote that the harbor at Jaffa wasn't as nice as the one at Caesarea. Shortly after this, and once again demonstrating that nature pours a vacuum, Mediterranean pirates would rebuild and occupy the port, along with parts of the city. I guess, and despite what Josephus recorded, Jaffa's harbor wasn't that bad. Or maybe beggars, along with pirates, can't be choosers. The occupation by the pirates got the attention of Roman Emperor Vespasian, who had the city and port once again destroyed. To make sure it stayed that way, he would build a citadel at the city and station a Roman garrison there, a while later, after the turn of B.C. to A.D., Jaffa received much discussion in the Midrash. Those really aren't additive to this podcast, except to know that throughout the period, and unlike many of the places I've covered, especially recently, Jaffa didn't simply disappear, nor was it minimized. Instead, it remained economically and academically in the forefront of that society. but. The Christian religion in that period, it was of little importance. Though, as time passed, and by about the 5th century AD, its importance had grown to the point that both Eastern and Roman bishops were placed there. In the mid 7th century, Jaffa was conquered by the Muslims, where it would continue to be used as a port. During the period, it was described as a small town protected by a strong wall with iron gates and sea gates, also made of iron. The mosque was described as pleasant and overlooking the sea, and an excellent harbor. The crusaders captured Jaffa in June 1099, during the First Crusade, where it would become vassal to the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The Muslims under Saladin reconquered Jaffa in 1187, but it was surrendered to King Richard of the Lionheart four years later. The Muslims needed the port and attempted numerous times to capture it back, but these all failed. In 1192, the warring forces signed a three-year truce, giving each time to lick their wounds. During this period, the crusaders would reinforce the castle and the city. It would be some 75 years before the Muslims would gain it back, this time in a battle fought by the Egyptian Mamluks. In 1321, a Muslim writer said the city was a small but very pleasant town lying on the coast, with a famous harbor and is well fortified. The markets were busy with many merchants. Ships came and went from all ports, near and far. Nearly two centuries later, in 1515, Jaffa was conquered by the Ottomans. Then something happened. Before the century was out, the city was described as a heap of ruins. I could find nothing about what led to the destruction, nor where the residents went. By the 17th century, it had been rebuilt, somewhat, as a city with churches and hostels for Christian pilgrims who landed at the coast and were headed to Jerusalem and Galilee. In the 18th century, it was under the sporadic control of pirates. Again probably Barbary pirates. All along the stretch of the coast, trade was down, and the residents lived in nearly constant fear. Maybe as a result of this, the harbor fell into disrepair, to the point that ships no longer landed there, instead relying on small oar driven boats to retrieve cargo and passengers from larger ships sitting slightly offshore. In early 1799, Napoleon captured the town after a grisly battle, which was swiftly followed by the bubonic plague. Despite this, and after the French departed, the port city was rebuilt, this time with accommodations for Jewish pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. By the mid-19th century, the town was reported as being about 20% Christian, slightly less Jews, and the balance Muslims it continued growing, with the Jewish population concentrating on the sand dunes north of the city in a town that would eventually become Tel Aviv. Then, in 1917, at the height of World War I, the Ottomans expelled everyone. Not long after this, the Muslims were allowed to return, but the Christians and Jews were kept in refugee camps. It wouldn't be until the Ottomans lost in the war and the region came under British Mandatory Palestine that both of these groups were allowed back. Shortly into the period when the city, region really, was controlled by the Brits, tension between the Jewish and Arab populations increased. A rash of Arab attacks between 1920 and 21 caused many Jewish residents to flee and resettle in Tel Aviv in what had been a small Jewish neighborhood north of the city, to the point that over the next five years, Tel Aviv would more than double in population. This sometimes riotous, sometimes peaceful existence was the status quo for the next couple decades, and culminated with the frustrated British raising much of Jaffa in the late 1930s. Almost immediately after World War II, the UN began partitioning the region to create the nation of Israel. Owing to the large Arab population in Jaffa, it was designated as part of the Arab state. Following the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, Jaffa would become part of Israel, where the city named Tel Aviv would be used for both that city and the place formerly known as Jaffa. Though, in some sources, you may see it called Tel Aviv Yoffa, with the latter being the Arabic equivalent of the Old World name. Normally, I would stop here, but there is one more thing about the city. It, and the immediate region around it, is known for its citrus production. Oranges, lemons, and the like hit a growth spurt in the mid-19th century when American farmers moved to the region, bringing with them that era's version of modern agricultural practices By the end of that century, an estimated 10 million of the fruit were being exported annually. Since then, and with the evolution of farming techniques and better water extraction, that number has grown substantially, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the people, places, and things in Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.